Hi, I'm Nicola Jennings, one of the co-founders of Athena Art Foundation. This is Athena Asks, a podcast where we talk to artists, curators, historians and collectors about their work, pre-modern art and the world today. Hello, my name is Jonquil O'Reilly and I'm one of the presenters of Athena Asks. My guest today is Timothy McCall, who is Associate Professor of Art History at Villanova University. He looks at material culture and the histories of fashion and explores the intersection, the visual intersection of power and gender, particularly looking at masculinity. Um, I am super excited to be chatting to you, Tim, because I am a mega fan, as you know. Um, and I'm also wildly excited about um, your new book, Brilliant Bodies, Fashioning Courtly Men in Early Renaissance Italy, which is going to be coming out in February of this year. Can you tell us a little bit about the book in general and um, what sort of led you to the research in this area? Thank you for inviting me, John Quill, and I'm probably more excited than, than you are to be here too. <laughs> And I think this book has been a long time in, in the making. So much of the very interesting scholarship and research on fashion in early modern Europe from the last few decades has focused to a great extent on women, even though men very much were spending more money on a lot of fabric and clothing on adornment. And particularly in the 15th century, it was men who were constantly on display, showing off authority and power through the, the colors of their textiles, through the gems that they wore through the metal adornments that suffused their clothes. They were the peacocks who were manifesting and visualizing and embodying authority. And if you didn't wear the right thing, if you were a Renaissance prince, then your authority could be threatened. These were people who were extremely concerned about their silhouettes. They're extremely concerned about the colors and the cuts of the clothing that they wore. They were concerned that people recognize the flash and the authenticity too of the gems and the medals that they wore, even though many of them were, were fictive. And fashion in this period isn't sort of frivolous at all. It's fundamental to authority. And I think that's why, you know, it's, it's both fascinating and interesting. It sort of hasn't been studied critically. And at the same time too, it, it was things that they cared about more than we could possibly imagine. That's so important, isn't it? It's something I came up against you know, so much in the beginning when I was looking at fashion in art history. It's becoming more respected now, but it's still a fight. I think a lot of people see it as a frivolous area of study, and yet they don't realise how important it would have been to the sitters in these paintings, how important it would have been to the painters to actually represent these fabrics properly because of you know the sheer wealth that they represented. What I love about your book is there are so many excellent academic studies of this area, but they're buried in journals that are difficult to find, or else they've been published as books, but with very small photographs. To find a book that is academically rigorous and so well written that you don't need any prior knowledge of the area, and for it to be such a, a beautiful book, to be able to understand what the textures are in these paintings via the images that are printed in front of you, it's such a joy. So thank you for writing it. Well, thank you. You should be my publicist. These are images that need to be seen clearly and in color. So much of this book's arguments is about surface effects, light effects of different sorts and textures, and the reader needs to be able to understand that. But it's a book that was a long time in coming and could exist because of the extent to which in the last decade or two art history has embraced the study of material culture and materiality. I think fashion studies has been taken a lot more seriously. Society cares about male fashion. It's culturally resonant in a way that it wasn't a few decades ago. So those sort of trajectories 
I had to get really sort of down and dirty in the culture of the 15th century. I really got into diplomatic correspondence, particularly ambassadors, and then various lords, particularly the, the Duke of Milan, all of the orders that he's making of clothes and other sorts of things. And when you read these, these letters, ambassadors from one court to another, they're constantly talking about who's wearing what, who's buying what. They're constantly talking about people showing off clothes or criticizing clothes. It was so important in terms of the performance of lordship, the, the performance and the display of authority. And it was also important financially. The industries were immensely important also. The luxury industries of clothing and textiles generally, and also of all sorts of metallic production, was fundamental to the economies of these kingdoms and these duchies. And I think scholars overlooked the materials, even though it was in some cases staring them in the face. Of course, some things I found and they hadn't been published, but my fundamental argument is that it, that it needs to be taken seriously. Absolutely. I think you open your book with a quote from Galeazzo Maria Sforza, who says, I'm a little bit ostentatious, but that's not a great sin in a lord. We're so used to seeing these studies of Florence and of Rome. I love the fact that you're focusing on courts that haven't really been deeply studied before. And then you pull in these little anecdotes that make the reader feel so involved. You're contextualising this hugely dense academic study for really any level of reader. What was it about Galeazzo Maria Sforza, for example, that really drew you? To answer that question partially, art historians and historians of Renaissance Italy are well aware of the courts that I study those of Ferrara, those of Milan in particular, or Bino or Mantua. But they certainly haven't received the sort of fine-grained analysis that I seek to provide in the book, at least in terms of display. And these are fundamentally display cultures. There's this divide between the courts and the republics, the republics in particular being Florence and Venice, where ostensibly display was a little bit more muted, but it's also overstated too, because Florentines spent a lot of money on their clothes. They just did it in different sorts of ways. Whereas the courts, particularly among princes, and then the prince's entourage, this is where lordship was fundamentally displayed through bodies, bodies that were arrayed in all different sorts of shining, brilliant materials, silhouettes, and ideals about bodies were, were shaped by clothes. The Lord had to show off his authority or else his power could be in jeopardy. So let's think a little bit about these silhouettes and what these ideals were and how they tie in with power, just because they are so different from our ideals of masculinity today. This is fundamental. And I'm very much looking at just a few decades of the late 15th century. Silhouettes change over time, but in the late 15th century, particularly for men, the silhouettes are very, very slender. They're very light. There's an emphasis on legs. In the Renaissance, men had legs. Culturally, it's women's legs that are most relevant, right? In the Renaissance, female legs were completely invisible, at least in terms of cultural intelligibility, in terms of cultural relevance. Men had beautiful legs in poetry, in romances. Men's legs were described in diplomatic correspondence. Women's legs or lower bodies weren't. They were almost exclusively in the 15th century described from the chest up. Their faces, their necks, their heads, their hands were described in great detail and praised in great detail. This is one thing I would love to be proven wrong about this. I would love someone to be able to show me that there's a poet who's talking about women's legs. But as near as I can tell, at least for, for early Renaissance Italy, this doesn't exist. It's because clothing covered them. It's sort of a chicken and an egg thing. Clothing covered them so they weren't culturally relevant, culturally visible. Even though we're all attracted to different sort of body parts, how they're held up in culture is historically specific, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, let's just rewind a second there. In diplomatic correspondence, oh, can you imagine? You know, letters between... <laughs> Um, Joe Biden's people and Boris Johnson's being like, yes, you know, I was very impressed with uh, Boris Johnson's legs. 
Uh, <laughs> he has a very slender calf, <laughs> a strong thigh. In 15th century Italy, this is absolutely the case. Everyone is talking about each other's legs. To give another example, Henry VIII was obsessed with legs, and he, for instance, wanted to know how beautiful were Francois I, the king of France's legs. He was a little younger than him and a rival. These princes were constantly talking about their legs. They were worried about what people thought of their legs. For instance, I found two letters sent to the Duke of Milan, Galeazzo Mirasforza, when his French wife was traveling to Milan, and two different representatives of the prince, one was his brother, wrote to the, the Duke back in Milan saying, we've seen her finally, let me tell you what she looks like. And they both describe her only from the chest up, except they also talk about her hands. She has beautiful hands, but they're not as beautiful as yours. Galeazzo, he was obsessed with his beautiful hands. And you see this, I think, in the most famous portrait of him in the Uffizi by Giotto Palaiuolo, where he's showing one hand, which is holding a glove. He wants to draw attention to his hands. And he, he was very concerned with how his new bride actually looked. He had only seen her in portraits. And of course, they're only so reliable. Yeah. You've got to be careful with those portraits. They really can play up to the sitter's strengths. Let's put it that way. <laughs> he's so clearly, in all of the correspondence that you quote, he's so vain. This idea that you have, you know, such a vain figure as your lord. It's difficult for us to imagine these people who have such authority being, you know, so obsessed with what they're wearing and how they look and how smooth their skin is and what their hands look like. But it's not so different from today in how, you know, if people in positions of power you know, want to be represented, where they want to be photographed. But I think the fact that you have found so many of these sources, these diplomatic letters, lots of the questions that you are answering in your book are questions that had never even been asked before, let alone explored. Does that mean that it has been combed over, but just never with this lens? Or is it a lot of material that hasn't really been explored that deeply? I think it's both. There has been a, a lot of interesting and important work done by um, particularly economic historians and textile historians describing these objects. A lot of them do exist, not so much as garments, but as scraps of fabric. A critical cast of masculinity, thinking about bodied and embodied history for me is, is very important too. I think that's one of the novel perspectives that I bring to this book. Without bodies, clothes are, can be considered sort of lifeless masses of cloth. We need to think about how they shape bodies. For instance, the story that I'm telling of 15th century male fashion and these very, very, very tight silhouettes could not have happened without the button, which was a relatively recent technological advance. Pre-button, it's all about hanging clothes, stereotypically the, the Roman toga. But once the button came into popularity really in the 13th and the 14th century, that pushed new ways of tailoring and lacing as well that allowed clothing to hug tight to bodies. And it totally produced new understandings of bodies and, and ideal bodies and new understandings of the ways that clothes relate to bodies. Something as seemingly unimportant, we take totally for granted as buttons, were remarkably dynamic technologies that really did change the way humans think about selves. It's fascinating, isn't it, that you can't help but look at these paintings and sculptures and frescoes with a modern eye and forget, as you say, it's a, it's a massive technological advancement to have a button. But then when you go back and then look at these portraits, you can see how much they're being shown off. You can see these really tight rows of tiny fabric covered buttons. So you can see how you know, excited people were by them, but also in those new silhouettes, so those curved forms that buttons allow for, where previously you wouldn't have had that way of gathering and holding textiles into those forms. What's 
really so sumptuous and exciting are those curved sleeves, those padded torsos and those rounded shapes and thinking about what that body is underneath. So as you say, you know, we talk about are you wearing the clothes or are the clothes wearing you? And in the case of the sort of thing that Galeata Maria Sforza is wearing, for example, he's showing off his legs in those very, very fine stockings with the emphasis on the legs being smooth and slender. But then you're also showing off the torso, but it's padded out to give a larger shoulder, a larger barrel-shaped chest. A lot of these shapes come from military garb. Although a lot more of the body is on view, it's being sculpted, isn't it? It's being sculpted by this padding and being sculpted by the gathering of fabric with buttons. That's interesting to me, how that you know affects your movement, how it affects your posture. Absolutely. When people think of stereotypical Renaissance male attire, one thing they think of is the doublet. A doublet, in a certain way, it's like our button-down shirt for men today. Button-down is important because it would be pulled tight and buttoned at the front, sometimes lace, but you're right. And you see this in a number of portraits, beautiful rows of buttons right down the center. But the doublet is literally doubled cloth and it does relate back to military attire. These were padded so they sometimes were wore under or under and over chainmail or plate armor to protect the body. We know that they were filled with horsehair, with silk cocoons, with cotton waste, with all sorts of things. So this is what really shaped the upper body. And then they would have been tied to calce. This is how you get stockings before they were knitted to hold fast to the leg. They were tied very, very tight. And for instance, when princes were dressed, they sometimes had to have multiple people helping them to get it to fit so perfectly. And calce or stockings were very carefully cut along the back of the calf. Everything had to be pulled as tight as possible. One thing that I learned from this project, too, is the extent to which we sometimes see things, like buttons, for instance. They've always been there, but we've never paid attention to. This is something I talk to students with all the time. This, is a, this project has been an object lesson for me. The extent to which we see, even art historians, right, whose job is to look and to interpret, things that are in famous paintings staring us right in the face, we don't pay attention to unless we already have a reason to look for them. For instance, there's a portrait of Galeazzo Maria Sforza's father, Francesco Sforza. It's in Milan in the Brera. And on his chest, he has all of these rows of little pieces of metal. I've seen that portrait in reproduction or in person many, many, many times and never paid attention until I kept coming over and over again in documents and particularly letters, people talking about these small round metallic discs called majette or maillette. There was a huge production of them in Milan. They were sometimes made of brass. They were sometimes silver and gilded. They adorned men and women in all sorts of ways. Sometimes they were strung up as necklaces. They would be in the hundreds on sleeves. They're spangles or sequins essentially, right? Or paillettes. Fashion historians might you know, know them as paillettes that are used by all sorts of designers today and, and also in all sorts of textiles because they animate the textile. They both make noises and they also reflect light. And I've been reading about them, that men were wearing them, and they are right in front of me was lines and lines of these majette that no one had paid attention to. But again, original viewers would have thought that he was dashing and virile and very fashionable. It took deep reading of documents and familiarity with the adornments that these men were wearing to see something that was plain as day right in front of our eyes. That's it, isn't it? It's the familiarity. We're so guilty of it. I think the, the modern viewer is often much more fixated on the face and how well the artist might have captured a sitter you know, on their expression and on 
on what message the painter is trying to send. They're not looking at these fine details, which in fact would have been so important to the contemporary viewer, and yet would have been so everyday in their vocabulary, in their visual vocabulary. And things like, as you say, magette, you forget how expensive these would have been. You forget with machine cut metal now, machine hammered metal, you would have had to have somebody hammering that out, cutting those individual pieces, stitching them on individually, the pure expense. But then to think about the modern viewer, courtiers would have been used to seeing these textiles. They would have known what these were shorthand for. Whereas we, you know, we have to have been through a million archives and have seen the words over and over and over again to suddenly be like, hang on, I've just seen that in a sleeve <laughs> right in front of me. One of the things you talk about in your book so successfully is how people were reading these visual cues at court. Because it's not just the Lord himself who would be dressed to the absolute nines. It's also his retinue. On the one hand, you've got to you know, set up your entire court. Everybody has to be dressing in a way that honours the person at the helm. But at the same time, that Lord has to set themselves above everybody and make themselves stand out. How do you then make sure that that cascades outwards in your court and also in livery you know how are you dressing all of your servants how are you dressing your horses for goodness sake absolutely and this is a point i'd like to make with students a lot generally today we think that fashion is all about the individual it's individual choice it's about individual identity but i try to get them to, to think of the ways that fashion is also corporate it's also collaborative that we're we're trying to look like these other people and we're trying to look not like these other people it's rarely just only about yourself right it's communicating sort of within groups and that was absolutely the case in 15th century italy that fashion was collaborative and these displays of lordship these displays of magnificence and splendor were collaborative but but they were also very hierarchical. So the prince and close family members had to be at the top and they would wear the most expensive velvets and, and be adorned with the most expensive gems and medals. But as you would go down, their courtiers too, they had to look good. And when you had a resident ambassador at another court, how they were dressed reflected back on the home court. So the Duke of Milan, I, I keep coming back to him, he outfitted his courtiers a couple of times a year. And so we have good records of what they were wearing. And certain levels of courtiers, for instance, would be given a garment in, say, a crimson dye, which would have been the most expensive. Others would be given the same garment and maybe a blue dye. Some would be given the garment gold brocaded, others silver brocaded. It was much more dynamic than just sort of static livery that a color meant this court, that gradations of hierarchies of court were, were important too. And this prince, it was his duty to clothe the court. It was his duty to make the, the court look as magnificent and splendid as possible. So a couple times a year, he would give stockings to his male courtiers. Then there became a sort of secondhand market for these stockings. Some of them actually show up in the Medici sale of 1495, when the Medici had been kicked out of Florence. Sforza stocking were included there, and some of them had been gifted. But so many people were wearing them in Milan because there were so many out there, probably a lot of them secondhand, that the prince decreed that you had to have written permission to wear them in the city. Certain courtiers also, they would have been given tunics, Different ones would have had an emblem brocaded in gold or a different emblem brocaded in silver. It was a language of hierarchy with clothing as the language. Fascinating, isn't it? And when you start to think of the sheer cost of kitting everybody out, it must have been just enormous. And yet that reflects the importance. I mean, we've said that Galeazzo Maria Sforza is a very vain man, but he also recognises the importance of this. He sees that how he is dressed and how his court to dress reflects across the country. It's how he can most effectively show his wealth and his power, not only to his own court, but, but way beyond. But what Sforza also recognises was the importance of his elevated dress 
and how that kept everybody in submission, how it established his authority. It proved that he was above everybody else. So using clothes as a signifier of authority, I think is so interesting. And this is something that all of his courtiers, of course, were well aware of. There's one letter where a, a group of them who had sort of previously held power under his father complained that they weren't being dressed well enough anymore. And they felt like they weren't being remembered is how, is how they said it, right? They were petitioning Ouch. to be better dressed so that so that their status would be recognized. And Galisto did spend a lot of money. It worked out sort of okay for him for a decade or so, but in the end it didn't because he was assassinated by three of his courtiers. There are a number of reasons why he was assassinated that historians have pointed out. Affairs with some of these courtiers' sisters and, and wives. But I think probably the most important, and this is from other scholars, is debilitating forced loans. He was going into so much debt that he was making his courtiers essentially pay higher and higher taxes. They were loans, but they were never getting them back. And eventually they had enough of this. And three of them assassinated Galeazzo. And there's one revealing anecdote about Galeazzo's assassination that I think is relevant for our conversation. We don't know specifically if it was true. It was told, although decades later, um, by a historian who had been a courtier under Galeazzo's rule. Bernardino Corio is his name. It tells that the day that he was assassinated, December 26th, um, St. Stephen's Day, and he was going to the Mass of the Church of Santo Stefano. It was also the church where the, the painter Caravaggio would be baptized 75 or so years later. Galeazzo was going out that day. It was bitter cold, right? The very end of December. And nevertheless, he was so concerned about his, his figure, about how he looked. Even though there had been a number of omens and a number of threats against his rule, a couple of assassination attempts and plots, he put on a Corazina, a kind of protective armored garment, and then took it off, saying that he looked, quote, too fat. And those are the words of Corio, who was at least present at court. And whether or not it's strictly true, I think at least tells us something about the extent to which these men were interested in their weight in their figure and how they looked generally. This was not uncommon. A number of his contemporary lords were assassinated or almost assassinated. The best example is this of almost a year and a half after Galeazzo was assassinated in, in Florence, there was the Pazzi conspiracy where Lorenzo de' Medici survived, but his brother Giuliano was, was stabbed in Florence Cathedral. And supposedly the day of the assassination, some of the would-be assassins who were known to the, the Sforzas embraced Giuliano to see if he was wearing one of these armored garments. He wasn't, and he received something like 60 wounds. Galeazzo, according to a doctor, had 14. So from a certain perspective, maybe these armored garments wouldn't have helped, but they might have. And lords certainly wore them some of the time. It was a way that they could also broadcast their their virility and their bellicose nature. So essentially, for Sforza, it was his vanity that was his demise. I mean, not only it being the cause of his assassination, but also uh, in no way hampering <laughs> being fulfilled and successful. Uh, Tim, this has been absolutely fascinating. There are so many areas that I'd like to discuss with you and so many things I want to learn from you. Thank you so much for joining us on Athena Asks today. It's been such, such a thrill to have you. Thank you, John Quill. It's been, I've, I've had fun. It's been my pleasure.